0: Fall in! I said fall in, you slimy worms! Put your toes on the edge of that clump line! I said put your toes on the edge of the clump line, you slimy worm! Ah, ten! I don't believe what I'm seeing where you been all your lives, at an orgy listening to Mick Jagger music and bad-mouthing your country, I'll bet. You better stop eyeballing me, boy. You're not worthy enough to look your superiors in the eye. Use your peripheral vision. Understand? Yes, sir. Now, every time I say understand, I want the whole group to say, yes, sir! Understand? Yes, Yes, sir! Understand! Yes, sir!
1: From Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critic a podcast about destroying your marriage, one movie at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today to lift us up where we belong is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of Taylor Hackford's romantic military melodrama, An Officer and a Gentleman, from 1982. So, Nakia, we'll talk about An Officer and a Gentleman in a few minutes, but probably the biggest reason I wanted to rewatch it, and I haven't seen it in 30 years or so, is because I'm currently watching and writing about HBO's Watchmen. And Lewis Gossett Jr. plays a major supporting role on there, and he's awesome. And I had honestly forgotten how good he is. I don't know that he ever had the career he should have had. He's probably still best known for stuff from this period. He played Fiddler on Roots and won an Emmy mm-hmm. for that. And then he won an Oscar for an Officer and Gentleman, becoming the first black man to win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar and only the third actor, after Hattie McDaniel and Sidney Poitier, to win any Oscar at all. Hmm. And I think Gossett is tremendous in this movie, but I think his role is inevitably going to lead us into a discussion of one of your favorite quote-unquote tropes, which is, of course, the magical Negro.
2: Mm, Is that my favorite? (laughs) So I
1: thought, fuck it, we're going to end up there anyway. Let's just go ahead and have that conversation up front this week. Mm. And we'll we'll probably need to get into definitions and I think there's probably subcategories at work within this trope, but let's let's just start. What do you think of when I say magical black man or magical negro?
2: Um, well, when I think of Magical Negro, I think of a supporting character whose entire purpose is to be of service to the white protagonist in the film. Right. Sometimes they are just sort of spiritually astute (laughs) uh other times wise old wise old mentors Mm. or they can you know see ghosts in the case of (laughs) otome brown Uh. in ghosts or they have actual magical powers
1: (laughs) there are a surprising number of (laughs) unexplained actual magical powers
2: again that they use in service to the white character And oftentimes they either die or just sort of disappear.
1: Or otherwise dedicate their entire being sacrifice
2: their entire being. To the white character. To the white character for something as trivial as, like, winning a golf tournament. (laughs) (laughs) Oftentimes there are class implications. The person is typically of a lower class than Mm -hmm. the white character. Sometimes they are, you know... Endearingly uneducated, mm. if not mentally disabled. <laughs> um. <laughs> So it's just, I mean... Sometimes
1: they're all of those Sometimes things.
2: they're all of those things. Because, again, I think the magical Negro trope, it's basically a eunuch. So it, they are not sexualized. They are—they can't be any threat in any way. So mm-hmm. they can't be an intellectual threat. They can't be a sort of sexual threat. And as big as John Coffey is in The Green Mile, he's still... He has the mind of a child. And right, so he's basically write. a giant infant. So it's just... It's a problem. Yeah. Um,
1: Writer... Nettie Corafor wrote an article in Strange Horizons discussing this issue, specifically in reference to the many, many magical Negroes in the works of Stephen King. Mm, the
2: He's Shining. Like, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Green Mile is his too. Isn't yep, yeah. Green Mile, mm-hmm.
1: Shawshank is his. Oh, yes. Okay. And she writes a lot of what you just said. The archetype of the magical Negro is an issue of race. It is the subordination of a minority figure masked as the empowerment of one. Mm. The Magical Negro has great power and wisdom, yet he or she only uses it to help the white main character. He or she is not threatening, because he or she only seeks to help, never hurt. The white main character's well-being comes before the Magical Negro's, because the main character is of more value, more importance. The Magical Negro is like the happy slave, glad to sacrifice himself, his happiness, his time, something of value to him, in order to help the white character. And at the end of the story, many audiences often end up quietly wondering... Why'd she do that? (laughs) That is, if they remember the character at all. Mm. And she lists the five components she thinks make up this trope. He or she is a person of color, typically black, often Native American, Mm. in a story about predominantly white characters. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two, he or she seems to have nothing better to do than help the white (laughs) protagonist, who is often a stranger to the Magical Negro at first. Number three, he or she disappears, dies, or sacrifices something of great value Mm -hmm. after or while helping the white protagonist. Number four, you said this, he or she is uneducated, mentally handicapped, at a low position in life, or all of the above. And number five, he or she is wise, patient, and spiritually in touch. Closer to the earth, one might say. Closer
2: to the earth,
1: he or she often literally has magical powers.
2: I do not understand why John Coffey was so concerned with Tom Hanks being able to pee without pain, <laughs> versus freeing himself from death row.
1: That character, that literally taking the pain yes, of, of white, the white people onto himself yes.
2: and killing himself in the process right. of doing it. Right. Yes. Yes. yes.
1: And never once complains about his lot in life for the fact that he's being executed for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, I like that movie, but that's a problem. That's a problem. Okay, so like I said, we we can get into sort of some of these examples and subcategories here. Mm -hmm. But just in the larger sense, I was looking at this... And this isn't even about that trope specifically, but just about the dynamics of Hollywood. I was looking at black actors who've been nominated for Oscars. Mm -hmm. I I went down that rabbit hole after looking at Gossett.
2: That long list?
1: Yeah. But here's the thing. To date, only five black actors have won a Best Actor or Actress Award. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sidney Poitier, Denzel Washington, Jamie Foxx, Forrest Whitaker, and Halle Berry is still the only woman to win Best Actress. Mm. In contrast... 14 actors have won supporting acting Oscars. And I don't want to lump all those together because some of them are strong roles in predominantly black movies mm-hmm. like Hershola Ali in Moonlight, mm-hmm. Viola Davis in Fences, Regina King last year in Beale Street. Mm-hmm. But I would say at least half of them are in movies with predominantly white casts with white protagonists. Mm-hmm. So, Cuba Gooding Jr. in Jerry Maguire, uh, Morgan Freeman in Million Dollar Baby. You mentioned Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost, Octavia Spencer in The Help, uh, Gossett in this movie, and of course, the original Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. So, I do think just generalizing, I think there is a tendency towards <laughs> the black characters supporting the white characters. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously what, what Hollywood is comfortable with or was comfortable with for a very long time.
2: It's a way of continuing a narrative, right? It has taken a long time, um, and we, we, still, we still don't find it often, but it has taken a long time for Hollywood to sort of recognize and sort of deem worthy any sort of exploration of the interiority of, of Black people. Separate and apart from the white gaze, separate and apart from what we provide to white people, separate and apart from our role in some sort of filmic absolution of white people.
1: Right. The the redemption story, right. <clears throat> which, which then we get into Marshall Ali's second Oscar Jesus. for Green Book. Right.
2: So you have a genius concert pianist and his I did not see this film so I am speaking just based off of yeah. what I've read but the richness of that story is totally sort of subsumed by his role in making this racist white man slightly less slightly racist. less racist <laughs> yes. so, and it's just like that's unfortunate
1: yeah and right. I the mean, arc is the white character's arc that's yeah. that's I think that's a key factor when we're talking about this trope is that these characters have no arcs of them right. of their own
2: right But I don't, in talking about this, I always want to be careful because I think we have to sort of recognize the market of Hollywood, right? And so it is not a... Dis to the actors who I think, given some of these people, given the roles, mm-hmm. actually do quite a lot yes. with the role. Yep. But uh, yeah,
1: you know, it's not a matter of blaming. It's the not actor a matter of blaming the actor. It's
2: roles. just a matter of like, let's get out of this. So you have someone like Viola Davis, who recently, in an interview, sort of reflecting back on her participation in the Help, has been very candid in saying, you know, I thought this was going to be a story about the maids and the mm. lives of the maids, and that just was not the case. It was more about
1: Emma Stone. Emma Stone's
2: character. character. Yeah, so it's like, is Morgan Freeman good in Shawshank Redemption?
1: <laughs> okay, now hold on. Because to me, I, the more I thought about this, Morgan Freeman has played like nine different derivations He's played, like, he's
2: played God he, and it, been right, in service to in a two white two dude. In
1: two <laughs> to two different white dudes. <laughs>
2: Morgan and Freeman, he maybe did the archetype, like he, he just, yeah, he yeah. is the original <laughs> yeah.
1: magical negro. And again, we get into like the sort of best friend role, sure. which is it's slightly different, but it's, it's a definitely little in the different. Part, but yeah, mm-hmm. which he played for like Clint Eastwood twice in Unforgiven mm-hmm. and Million Dollar Baby, and
2: then um, Driving
1: Miss Daisy. Oh right, Driving <laughs> Miss Daisy. I mean, yes. how could you forget? Yes, Hoke, Hoke. Oh, Robin Hood. He's he's the vaguely spiritual best friend to Kevin Costner's mm-hmm. Robin Hood in that movie. Mm-hmm. Batman Begins, he plays Lucius Fox, the mm. guy who provides Christian Bale with all his equipment and yes. stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But then I, I think, to me, Shawshank is an exception to that. I think it mm-hmm. gets lumped in with that. Mm-hmm. But Shawshank, if you look at that movie, he's the one with the art. Mm-hmm. Tim Robbins' character does not change in that movie at all. Hmm. Tim Robbins' character leaves the prison as the same person he came in on. He's the catalyst that changes Morgan. Red.
2: Interesting. Morgan okay. Freeman's character. Okay.
1: And the movie ends when Morgan Freeman's character learns to accept hope and, <laughs> learns, you know, leaves the prison. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that one is a, is okay. is an exception. Okay. The others I will not defend.
2: Though I will argue, Morgan Freeman does a lot of work to get Tim Robbins out of jail and doesn't really do a whole yeah, lot to well, free that, himself. Right. That
1: part of it, he definitely fulfills the magical negro because he provides the tools. Yes. He's the guy. That can get anything,
2: right? Right. So Except he's not literally
1: magical, but right. he can get Rita Hayworth posters and yes. chisels and all of that stuff that Tim Robbins needs to effect his escape.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. What are some other examples of this trope?
2: Uh, let's see. You, you mentioned Whoopi and Whoopi and Ghost and Ghost. Bagger Vance, <laughs> uh, Will Smith.
1: <laughs> I confess, I have not seen that. Movie. Neither I have I, and because I...
2: I magical Negro in golf <laughs> is like okay. That there's like nothing. The trailer
1: was enough. Of nothing like, there nope, for me. That's a big note. Um,
2: I just. You know, <laughs> envision Will Smith sort of magically appearing on a on the horizon of a golf that's, course It's
1: just—that's exactly what happens. That's
2: don't yeah. need to go there. Um, and then
1: disappears when, right when Matt Damon wins his big golf tournament.
2: We talked about Abilene in the Help. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Octavia Spencer has played this role a couple of times. Yes, Octavia
2: has played it a few in times, the help
1: and in The Shape of Water.
2: Yes. Who else? We said The Shining.
1: Yup, Scatman Brothers in The Shining. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: <laughs> Who again? Just. He shows up just to get an axe in the and back. And dies. He immediately dies. Movie, which was actually a change from the book. In the book, he actually does he, he is essential in helping the family mm, escape okay. from Jack Torrance. But mm-hmm. no, Kubrick's movie. He just shows up to get an axe in the back. His purpose is served at that point.
2: And Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix.
1: Lawrence Fishburne and Gloria Foster in The Matrix. Sure at, yes. Uh, what's her name? Uh, the the, Oracle. the Oracle. Which yes. is classic.
2: Uh, again, but like, don't waste your time on seeing the future of people. Like, it's just, like, I don't give a shit what you do, dude. Um, but yes, Lawrence Fishburne, who, and I love The Matrix. I, and I haven't seen the sequels. I've only seen the first one. But one thing that has always sort of stuck with me is like, why couldn't Lawrence Fishburne be the one? Right, he, right. He had all the knowledge and all the Right, he's just,
1: the guy that had to teach Keanu Reeves yeah. how to do all the stuff that he could already do. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't he working to bring down this whatever? I don't remember what he the was, fuck it was. It was a thing. It was a thing, yeah, aliens, it was a whole, something like
2: fascist things. Right. But something.
1: no, he, he can't be the star. All he can be is the mentor. Right. You like to talk about Bubba Gum. God. <laughs>
2: Yes, apparently Tom Hanks has had a number of magical Negroes in his life. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Forrest Gump, we had McKelsey Williamson in Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. um, who, again, we get back to the sort of, you know, childlike yeah. intelligence, though Forrest Now, Gump to be was fair, also, he was right, meeting Forrest right. on Forrest He was meeting on Forrest, on forrest, forrest where Forrest was, right, yes. But Forrest went on to be, you know, a multimillionaire. <laughs> and Bubba died in Vietnam. Yeah. So, talking about shrimp.
1: Mm-hmm. If we get into, if we expand the definition to just this sort of supportive best friend role, mm-hmm. then I think the list is almost. Oh, on
2: that, the list. I mean, that's just every.
1: But again, mm-hmm. these characters who have no life of their own right. in the movie, but are always there to give advice to the white character. You said Tom Hanks, Dave Chappelle, and you've got Mail mm-hmm. plays that role for Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Um, go back to my favorite movie of all time. Dooley Wilson in Casablanca.
2: I mean, yeah. Again, I just, I, who, I envision these people just, he's playing the piano, he's like, what the fuck, dude? Get, I mean, just, like,
1: just... gets Rick out of Paris when yes. the Nazis are coming, sticks with Rick through the war, mm-hmm. plays in Rick's nightclub. They're best friends throughout the entire movie. At the end of the movie, Bogart goes off with Claude Rains to join the resistance, and mm-hmm. He has sold his cafe to Sydney Green Street and thrown Sam in with the sale. Yes. Basically.
2: Yes, because Sam is of no more use to him. <laughs> <laughs> and is, again, property to be, you know, he
1: literally sells Sam to Sydney to the Green next Street. One. Yeah.
2: So, no, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a huge problem. I mean, and that's like that continues on to this day. I mean, the first Sex in the City film, Jennifer Hudson plays Sarah, Jessica Parker's assistant. And I think her name is Louise. Yes, it's Louise because she's from St. Louis. And there's this whole I thing. I did not about know Louise. you were
1: this fluent in these Sex in the City.
2: I watched the first cry. movie. Actually, I watched the first movie and the second movie. The second movie is an abomination <laughs> because they are, it's it's just for a whole bunch of reasons. But the first one is also not good. Okay. But. Her whole purpose is to just sort of rebuild Sarah Jessica Parker after she has been sort of basically left at the altar by Mr. Big okay. and and serve as like the black best friend that says comes in and says the sassy thing and totally fixes her life and totally organizes her life so that she can start over. And all Sarah Jessica Parker gives her is this ugly ass bag. And I just, it's just... No. There are other things to do.
1: You just reminded me of uh, Queen Latifah in another movie we like very much. Um,
2: Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction.
1: Yes. (laughs) I love that movie.
2: Yes. Her job is to actually come in and help the white lady. Emma Thompson's brain Mm -hmm. so she can
1: finish her book.
2: Yes. And puts up with a lot of shit (laughs) to get there. Yes. We're good at fixing white people's lives. We're not really at all interested in fixing our own. (laughs) If all the magical Negroes came together and Mm -hmm. we, like, did a, like, what's that thing called? A Voltron, is it? Like, where all the things come together? We
1: to form a giant yeah, exactly. super just
2: giant super just magical negro and help our own like fix it. this country would be such a better place it's just we're wasting ourselves <laughs> even you you are always like use your magical black powers i am my and arm I, hurts I'm so disappointed use you don't your have magical them. black powers and i, I like, always I say, have a headache
1: suck exactly. it out like
2: if michael clark duncan i had magical black powers I love you, but I would use them on my, I would not be here.
1: Well, no, that's not, No. movies have taught me that's not what you do.
2: I would, you know, be a wealthy woman somewhere else. (laughs) I would not be using it on you. Somebody needs to make that movie where the Magical
1: Negro is just like, Fuck this! Right? I'm gonna go. There's
2: other shit. Mm-hmm. I could be at the border. I, mean, you know, fixing the remain I just, Mexico. I policy. just realized I doing, I'm a
1: superhero. Do
2: other shit. <laughs> Climate change is happening. I could probably do something about that.
1: No, you got to go help Matt Damon with his golf no, game. No, fuck
2: off. <laughs> We're fighting evolution. Like you're obviously, you need to die out. Is what the world is telling us. You can't pee right. So, <laughs> why is that my problem? <laughs> For all the, like, white supremacists thinking that whites are so great and powerful, you need a lot of fucking help. We
1: we do need a lot of help.
2: And I think it's just like, you know, how they breed pugs or whatever, and they can't breathe or something. It's just like, just let them die. Bulldogs, Yes, like, they're not supposed to be. No. So let's just stop helping and just let them die off. I saw a sneak preview of a new show, a new sketch comedy show that's going to be debuting on Netflix in December called Astronomy Club, and it was titled Magical Negro Rehab. (laughs) So it's... (laughs) It
1: was a good skit. You sent it to me.
2: So funny. Mae Brown from Ghost, Bagger Vance, Hoke from Driving (laughs) Miss Daisy, uh, John Coffey from Green Mile, Abelene from The Help, and they're all in this rehab and it's called... Support group. Support support group. Dignity and Ambition for Magical Negroes, (laughs) a.k.a. Damn.
0: It's not easy learning a new skill. Here at Dignity and Ambition for Magical Negroes, or DAM, we help magical Negroes from classic films go from supporting to lead. Repeat after me. I am the lead character of my own story. I am the lead character of my own story. I am more than the advice I give white people. I am more than the advice I give give white white people. people. I will not just magically disappear once I feel my work is done.
2: I will not just... We talked about this. (laughs) So funny and sharp.
1: Helping them get over their urge to help white
2: people. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And they, you know how in rehab they give you sobriety coins. (laughs) Right. And chips, yeah. chips, yes. And so they have, um, you ain't a coon coin, which <laughs> it's just, it's really true. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah. yeah, it's...
1: We'll link to it in the show notes. It was a good skit.
2: Very, very funny. And there's a, a part of it where the comedian playing John Coffey from the Green Mile has to sort of run what they're calling the White Mile and do it without <laughs> hugging the sickness out of any white people. And it's just, it's so funny. So, but it's also like... The other problem with the magical Negro trope, right, is that it, and this is where I'm going to get dark, Mm -hmm. as I am wont to do.
1: (laughs) And that's our show. Right, we're
2: going to wrap it up. Uh, We're going to end on a downer. Um, Okay. is like how that manifests in the real world in a way that is actually deadly to black people. Mm -hmm. So when I was thinking about it in preparation for this, our recording, I was reminded of how Darren Wilson described Mike Brown before he shot him and it was yeah. just like he sort of became this superhuman evil monster. Right. It was monster. like he was the Hulk. He basically. was like he was the Hulk. And so it's it's sort of in the same way. Oh, wouldn't right. stop him. Then the magical Negro becomes a convenient trope in the sense that it strips away the humanity and it instead of emasculating, it heightens the threat, right? So all of a sudden Trayvon Martin is no longer a teenager. He's now right. this huge superhuman person that can fight a fully grown man.
1: Yeah, I actually I came across an article. Uh, this is by Professor James Braxton Peterson. The article is entitled "Why We Need to Stop Talking About the Magical Negro." Many reasons, and he talks about a lot of what you just you just talked about. And he says perceptions matter, and the perception that black people are more than human allows law enforcement to treat them as less than human.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so yes, that was a real bummer note. Done. Which was. to end this segment?
2: It really was. <laughs> That's my job. I feel. <laughs>
1: You do it very well, almost as if you have magical powers.
2: There's a dark side to the Morgan Freeman coin.
0: (laughs) Good Lord,
2: are you all
0: right? Well, I guess sometimes things have to come apart before we can put them back together again. Oh, you're a magical Negro, too. Who you call a Negro, bitch?
1: We'll segue into talking about this movie. I don't think this character fits all of those tropes. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably a better representation. But the whole reason it came up is because I was thinking about it and realizing that it's it's a very strong performance. It's a very memorable character. I think probably Louis Gossett is what most people remember from this movie. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we actually learn anything about his life through the entire movie. Would not be surprised. Yeah, no. Okay, so what do you actually know about this movie, if anything?
2: Isn't this the one where he, like, carries her out of a factory or something? Yes. That's all I know. That and there's some cheesy like song playing while they're, which
1: I, I'm pretty sure The Simpsons used at some point. Yes, I think any movie that ends up on, especially early Simpsons, <laughs> I think is automatically qualified for this project.
2: I'm not sure about that.
1: That's automatically a cultural touchstone movie mm-hmm.
2: if right. If but the then did what, it. whatever the, the moment in the Simpsons was is like that's the only takeaway I need from the film, and so now I have it, and I don't really need. But more, you do not so the context. I don't need it. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm now conversant in it. Oh, yeah, remember that scene where he carries her out of the... Mm-hmm. Is it a factory? Where does he carry her Yeah, it's,
1: it's a factory. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: So, there you
1: go. Okay. That's all I need to know. Anything else?
2: It's a gigolo dude, right?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Richard Gere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's, what's your Richard Gere experience? I don't
2: know that I have a lot of Richard Gere experience. I sort of hate like that movie with him and um, Winona Ryder, where she's oh
1: my god, she's
2: like twenty years younger oh than my him.
1: God. Talk about a trope. And we dying, need to <laughs> <explore someday.
2: laughs> and in her death, teaches him how to love, and it's beautiful. Like her heart is bad, and he, you know, needs to learn how to love. So it's it's terrible.
1: Uh, um, what, Autumn in New York. Is that yes, what that's called? that
2: is what it is called. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's a terrible. It's a bad film. Terrible. It's movie. a bad film.
2: <laughs> but I will watch it anytime it's on. I don't know why, and I don't I, even like romantic like. There's
1: something. a whole genre of dying girl yes. movies, and
2: again, their whole purpose is to make the man better. Mm-hmm. And it's just
1: okay. We'll talk about that at some point too. Okay. That's a good one to discuss. Yeah, uh, we're not gonna watch that movie though. I'll tell you it's right now.
2: Movie. And then I know that Lou Gossett plays a drill sergeant or something mm-hmm. to some effect and he gets to Again, one
1: of One of your favorite kind of <laughs> characters. You love the gruff drill sergeant <laughs> slash police yes. sergeant.
2: You eyeballing me, boy. That, so that's, yeah. That's all. I and I, I feel like I, that's all I need to know about this film.
1: I mean, like I said, I think probably the things most people remember from this movie are the ending mm-hmm. and Louis Gossett Jr. So there you go. Okay. All right. Well. And early this week. What do you say?
2: I think that would be a great Mm. idea.
1: (laughs) Okay. Let's do a little background on this. Okay. Made for a measly $6 million, uh, an officer and gentleman made over $130 million at the box office. It was the third highest grossing movie of 1982 after E.T. and Tootsie. Hmm. So this was a huge hit. It earned an Oscar for Lewis Gossett Jr., as we've said. It also earned earned an Oscar for Best Song. And nominations for Deborah Winger, Editing, Screenplay, and Score. And I'll be curious to see what you think of it. If if memory serves, and this is something Mark Kermode has said, I I think people do remember that ending, and I think they remember it as being this romantic, cheesy Mm -hmm. movie. And as Kermode says, it's a much tougher film than people remember it being. It's not a romantic movie. It's actually a movie about blue-collar, downtrodden people. So uh, I'm interested to see what we think of it now. um, Because that's how I remember it. I remember it as being a grittier movie than its reputation. Okay. But I may be misremembering. Um, As you said, it stars Richard Gere, who was fresh off American Gigolo, which had been a hit. And Deborah Winger, who is an interesting figure in cinema. She had done, before this, I think she had done Urban Cowboy with John Travolta, was her big hit. And then shortly she would go on to do Terms of Endearment with Mm -hmm. Shirley MacLaine, for which she was nominated. She was nominated for this movie, and then a few years later she was nominated for a movie with Anthony Hopkins called Shadowlands. But I think she was a tremendous actress, Mm -hmm. probably as good as that generation produced. And yet, the narrative around her, and in fact, there's an entire movie about it, is that she sort of disappeared. That, you know, she was huge for this time period, and then she just sort of walked away from it all. By choice. Well, yes. Okay. Yes, okay. mostly. Okay. Um, Rosanna Arquette actually directed a documentary that was called Searching for Deborah Winger. Hmm. That was about, not just her, but about the challenges facing women in Hollywood. Yeah. It was not, I think if that documentary were made today, it would probably dig deeper into the sort of Me Too stuff. Mm-hmm. And again, this I looked for it. It's not streaming anywhere. I would have watched it again. If I remember, it's not so much about that, although there's definitely, they talk about the sexism and the misogyny in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's more about like the choices women have to make to have a career versus the choices men have to make, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Deborah Winger was one of these people who got a reputation for being really difficult to work with. Which meant she spoke her mind. Right. She told people to fuck off. Mm-hmm. She did not have a good experience working making this movie. Hmm. Um, she didn't particularly get along with Richard Gere. She said he was a brick wall, which <laughs> is kind of unknowable. She said the director was an asshole and an animal. She said the producer would watch the dailies and then come on to set and complain that she was not fuckable enough. Oh, wow. And give her water pills to lose weight. Oh, my God. Yeah. So just all kinds of bad shit. And I think she was just one of those people. I mean, we talked a while ago about Kathleen Turner yeah. being one of those people, too. That
2: I don't need this shit.
1: Right. Yeah. And and what happens is they get a reputation for being, oh, she's difficult right. to work with. Right. Ivan Reitman, who worked with Winger on not very good comedy called Eagle Eagles, called her historically difficult to work <laughs> with. And she has admitted that she sometimes behaved badly and sometimes mm-hmm. took her insecurities out on people, and, like, you know, she isn't proud of everything she mm-hmm. did, but it also sounds like she wasn't willing to put up with this shit right. that a woman has to go through in Hollywood. So for a lot of years, she just didn't work. Yeah. Or she did small projects when she felt like it. She turned The list of things she supposedly turned down is historic. And I believe it because she was, again, She three Oscar nominations. She was a huge actress at the time. Mm-hmm. She was supposed to be in Peggy Sue Got Married. That, apparently, she was injured and had to walk away from it. She walked off a league of their own. She was supposed to play the oh, Gina wow. Davis part in a league of their own. Supposedly, she walked off. It had something to do with Madonna. <laughs> she was upset Penny Marshall had hired Madonna or she didn't get along. I don't know, something. But she walked away from that. She turned down The Accused. She turned down Arthur, which mm. we watched recently. She turned down Basic Instinct, Big, Blue Velvet, Bull Durham, Fatal Attraction, Ghost, Misery, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and The Terminator. Wow. Now, this is grain of salt because you hear these stories mm-hmm. and, you know, she might have been on a list for it. Mm-hmm. Who knows if she really did. Some of those she has said, though, she turned down. And she's actually said she didn't regret it, because she said, like the accused, she said, Jodie Foster's a better actress than I am. Hmm. Which I don't think that's true, but... And she said the same thing about Bull Durham. She basically said, like, it's easy to look at that now and say, I should have done that, but I wouldn't have done with that what Susan Sarandon Mm -hmm. did with that part. Mm -hmm. So I think she's kind of self-deprecating that way. And then I think she's also said that she is part of a small club of women who are willing to age in Hollywood. (laughs) I love this quote. She said... She's talking about Michelle Pfeiffer, who again she and Michelle Pfeiffer were up for the same part in something. She said, "Michelle and I are about the same age. We came up in the business together, but now she looks like my younger sister. Hmm, how does that happen?" <laughs> so I, I think she's great. I think she's I, I think she's tremendous in this movie, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering correctly. So that was one of the other reasons I wanted to watch this is because I think she's she's really good.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's like um, as we think about this idea of tropes, you know who was it that said like you're either you're fuckable or you're the mom or you're the judge. Like it's like these three. (laughs) It's,
1: it's it's, It's the quote is something like, you know, Ingenu, district right. attorney, driving mystery. Yeah, <laughs>
2: like that doesn't leave a whole lot of room to like explore your art and to have mm-hmm. do interesting things and then layer on top of that a Hollywood system that very much pressures and incentivizes 50 year olds that look like 30 year olds. Yeah. And yeah, so that I can imagine that that's a very difficult choice to make. Um, but it is a, also a privilege to be able to say, you know what, I'm not doing it and I'm walking away right. from it.
1: And she did come back, she made a movie. A couple of years ago, called *The Lovers* with Tracy Letts, which I did not see, but I know her reviews for that were tremendous. Mm-hmm. And now she's actually on a Netflix sitcom. Um, I think she's playing Ashton Kutcher's mother. Oh Jesus! On a sitcom, <laughs> but it's work. Okay. It's a steady paycheck. Have you seen anything with her in it?
2: I was trying I to think. I don't know that I've seen Deborah Winger in anything.
1: We'll watch *Terms of Endearment* one of these she's, days. Yeah.
2: Isn't she the mom in that movie with um, Anne Hathaway? Rachel getting married. Okay. She doesn't have a huge part in it. That may be the only thing I've seen her in. Okay. She was Wonder Girl? <laughs> she
1: was Wonder Girl. Which, again, is something she walked away from. She was on three episodes of Wonder Woman playing her little sister Wonder Girl in the stupid leotard outfit. And she didn't want to do it anymore, and she walked away from that. It's fair. Which was a good decision, but... I'm sure at that age, it's probably hard to give up that steady paycheck, mm-hmm. too. Okay, so what are you expecting from this movie?
2: Uh, you know, terrible 80s film.
1: <laughs> you have a, is it a love-hate or just a hate relationship to the 80s? Uh, I
2: mean, I, I guess it has to be love-hate. I was born in the 80s, so I can't totally hate it, but. Yeah, but
1: whenever we watch movies well, cause from because there were the a lot of things. And we watch a lot of them, because that's We hadn't my quite
2: figured era. out yet. So <laughs> I think it's fair to have some reservations about films in the 80s. <laughs>
1: I think that is fair. My guess is that you will have some reservations about this one. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that'll be what's interesting to talk about, but I guess we will see okay okay for those of you watching along at home i'm pretty sure last week i assured everyone that an officer and gentleman was on netflix it is not i i had seen it come up in my recommendations on amazon prime and that's why i thought it was on netflix it's not so it's on amazon prime people can watch it there and it's also available to run from the other streaming services okay when we get back we will talk about an officer and a gentleman i joined
2: the navy (laughs) <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> you
0: man. Fly the North What for?
2: Jets want to fly jets.
0: Fly the family by the stream. Grayson, look at yourself. Officers don't have tattoos. What's your name, boy? Mayo. Zach Mayo. Sir. Go, go, come on, baby. Out, here, by, by,
2: by. You got a girl, Mayo, the one?
0: No. Uh-huh. I ain't looking for one either.
2: What are you looking for? I'll
0: tell you something about the local girls that come across the sound on the ferry every weekend just one thing in mind, and that's to marry themselves a naval aviator. I heard about these girls that are looking for my husband. Tell me. I will use every means necessary, fair and unfair, <laughs> to trip you up, expose your weaknesses as a potential aviator and as a human being. <laughs> I expect to lose half of you before you're on so get out of here. I think it'd be a gas to Just how far
2: would you go to get back? Would you let yourself get pregnant? Don't trick him or try to trap him. So, Zach, what do you do with the girl when you're through
0: with her? I see you've had some training, man, eh? Oh. Oh. In every class, there's always one joker who thinks that he's smarter than me. Oh, what kind of a human being are you? You better lock it up, boy. I'm
1: trying to be nice to you. I'm trying to be your friend, Zach. But
0: I'm be your friend. Get out of here. Uh, now, why would a slick little hustler like you want to sign up for this kind of abuse anyway? I want to fly jets, sir. My grandmama wants to fly jets.
2: No, man, you ain't nothing special. And if you ask me, you ain't got no chance of being no officer. I ain't going to quit. You're out. Don't you do it.
0: not I got nowhere up else to go.
1: Richard Gere. Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman, coming soon from Paramount Pictures. And we're back. (laughs) A couple episodes ago, you made fun of the way I say, and we're back, (laughs) and now I'm self-conscious about it every time I do it. So thank you very much for that. Sure. During the break, Nikki and I watched An Officer and a Gentleman. Let's start with a couple of reviews. Okay. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. He said it was the best movie about love that I've seen in a long time. Maybe that's because it's not about love as a Hollywood concept, but about love as growth, as learning to accept other people for who and what they are. Okay, so it sounds like you're going to have opinions about that to take up with Roger. Richard Schickel, on the other hand, in Time, was not a fan of the movie. He said it is full of bang-on melodramatics and simple romanticized characters with carefully supplied motivations. Aside from a few delightfully dishonorable throwbacks, we haven't had movie making like this since the 50s, and maybe we don't want it. Pauline Kael fell somewhere in the middle. She said, This formula romantic melodrama, which involves the regenerative powers of military discipline, seems to come out of a time warp, but Taylor Hackford has done a smashing job of making the retrograde love story whiz by. It's crap, but crap on a motorcycle. She also said, And I agree with this. It's Deborah Winger who holds the picture together. Gear has become capable and accomplished, but he doesn't have what Winger has, and she has it right to her fingertips. The vividness of those we call born performers. You pull for her even if the premise that this is her only chance in life strikes you as height, and you have subversive thoughts about what kind of life she'll have as a Navy Flyer's wife. Nakia, what did you make of an officer and a gentleman?
2: I didn't really care for it. No? Uh, No. I don't know, it seemed to be... I think what it was saying about women was troubling, (laughs) to say the least. And save for maybe a couple of scenes and a couple of actors, I didn't see a whole lot of value in it as a film. Okay. So yes, absolutely. I think Deborah Winger is the heart of this film. And in the same way that her character sort of quote unquote saves Richard Gere's character, I think she saves him as an actor in this film because <laughs> he just, he's like, he's so, he's giving nothing and I get that that's sort of his character. Right. But it was just.
1: Well, I told you, she said he was a brick wall. Yeah. That's how she described Maybe he was just being Not the character, but Richard Gere.
2: (laughs) He was being method. So the
1: question of how well that works for this character is one I think we can talk
2: about. So yeah, and then Lou Gossett was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, Though I would argue, I don't know that I saw the Academy Award worthy performance. Maybe until he sort of takes Richard Gere's character through that sort of brutal weekend long Right. Physical punishment. And they finally have that last exchange where he breaks down and like gets him to sort of say why he needs to be in aviation officer school so badly. Like that exchange between them, I think, is really powerful. And it's both of them at their best in this film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, otherwise, I don't. I didn't,
1: <laughs> didn't do anything for you. Didn't
2: do anything for me. And the idea that it's a love story makes me sort of sad.
1: I looked it up. I believe it is something like number 29 on the AFI's 100 Films, 100 Passions list of the most romantic American movies of all time.
2: So let's think about what she's signing up for. <laughs> <laughs> she, well, and also that review from... Ebert, I guess Richard Gere's character grows a little bit, we, hey, uh, a little bit. I think but, that's
1: something we should talk right, about. Right,
2: but it's not to say that oh, this is a love, this is a true love story because it shows you know growth. It's like mm, I'm not, I don't, I think that's giving it way more credit than it deserves. And I think she is worthy of so much more than an emotionally stunted, dismissive <laughs> brick wall of a person. Mm-hmm. Who apparently can can fuck well, and that's great. <laughs> but I don't know that that's something that you build a life on. And again, I, I always have trouble with these sort of narratives where it's like the woman is saving the man. Yeah. She's going to sort of love him out of his trauma. And it's like, well, no. Why would you spend your time doing that? And it, that is not, you know, a happy life or a happy marriage make. And this is also the man that just calls your friend a cunt. for Like, it's just like, I just... <laughs> So, no, I don't find it to be a love story.
1: It's amazing how many of these movies we watch where I think we're not exactly sanguine about the relationship mm-hmm. going forward after the movie no. ends. No, The whole happily ever after thing is hard to buy in a lot of these movies as we rewatch them.
2: Well, and he also, and part of me is just like, and I get it's a film, so you, pro- you can't really do this, but the big moment, the big sort of emotional moment is him showing up at the paper mill... And he picks her up and he carries her out to, like, rapturous applause Mm. from all the people working in the mill. But it's like, I feel like there should have been a conversation before that. I'm just like.
1: I do want to. I I think that's absolutely true. I'm
2: sorry I'm a dick. Right. Would you be interested in spending some time with us Let's stick a pin in that.
1: (laughs) You know, that's the end of the movie. Yes. All right. So let's let's go through this movie a little bit. Some Mm -hmm. of the big scenes and moments here. Mm -hmm. But we open with a scene that I think is supposed to give us sympathy for where this guy is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which is him with his father, yeah, Robert Logia, mm-hmm. and then the the flashbacks to his youth.
0: I'm out at sea three weeks out of every month. When I'm back in port, I don't have time for any of this daddy
2: stuff because that's not who I am. That's okay, sir.
0: Oh, wait a second, kid. You don't understand. I'm too old for this. I don't care what the Navy says. This is no place to bring up a kid like I told you on the telephone. You're better off in that state school back in Virginia. you are never
2: going back there. They treat me like shit.
0: Well, maybe that's not for you to say. God damn it, don't look at me that way. What happened to your mother had nothing to do with me. It did. You said you were going to come back. You promised. Is that what she said? That's a female lie. That's bullshit. That's a lie.
2: I found your letters. I read them after she did it. You said you were going to come back for us. You said you loved her, and she believed you. You're a liar. So many flashbacks. We saw his whole life at the beginning of the film. <laughs> we,
1: we didn't see that much, it actually. Was, it was a lot. It felt like a it lot It felt to like you. a lot.
2: It felt like, I just don't, and again, this is me, like, not, I'm not doing the good faith thing here, where you, like, you just buy into the the sort of filmic world, but I'm just like. Well, that's
1: not really your brand, it? Is really
2: it really isn't, but it's like, he, you're, so all of a sudden, you're standing there with your father, and. All of your childhood is just flashing back before your eyes in this one moment. it just felt like it just felt like a lot. Just too much. Way too much.
1: Yeah, right. Anything to say about this sequence?
2: I mean, it felt like they were spoon feeding the audience a lot. Like, I don't know that we needed all there's of that a lot, a lot of to understand there. the dynamic between he and his father. Like, his father was in bed with two women, and his son was obviously. Well, that was there, his graduation
1: didn't. present from college? Right, but
2: it, was, so that yeah. scene alone would have been enough to say. That's I don't think not I got a, a card
1: father. from my father when I graduated college.
2: <laughs> we're not going to talk about fathers because that'll <laughs> take us down a, a whole other road here. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's table setting. Uh, right. So we know that he was sort of thrust into his father's life after his mother committed suicide, and his father had no intention of ever being a father, and was more interested in sleeping with Filipino prostitutes <laughs> yes. in between sort of stints on the ship as a Navy officer, or I guess he wasn't an officer, he was... Right, he was a sergeant Sergeant or something. Or something. And that, you know, even in his 60s or 70s, he's continuing this same lifestyle of sleeping with multiple women, with right. his son, waking up to vomit out whatever he drank the last night before, and... <laughs> Not really being a supportive father. Okay.
1: So this is supposed to give you sympathy for it doesn't. I don't the really kind care. of guy that Richard Gere grew up to be
2: uh-huh. here. You know what? We all have bad father <laughs> stories. That's what therapy is for.
1: I don't think he's been to therapy. And, no,
2: he hasn't. And he needs to.
1: So he's he's joined the Navy.
2: Yes. Here's what I'm saying. Broken people shouldn't go into the military. They should be going to therapy.
1: Mm, okay. And then we, we leave his worthless father mm-hmm. and we meet his new father figure, Gunnery Sergeant Foley.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Louis Gossett Jr. How you doing, Sarge? What'd you call me? Beg your pardon. What did you call me, boy? I called you Sarge. Before that, well, I didn't call you anything before that. You said, "How are you?" I am not a you, boy. A you is a female sheep, boy. Is that what you think I am, boy? No. No, sir. No, sir. Lada, sweet peas. No, sir. Hey, you want to fuck me up the ass? Is that what you call me a you, boy? You a queer. Hell no, sir. Where are you from, boy? Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, sir. Ah, only two things come out of Oklahoma Steers and queer. Which one are you, boy? I don't see no horns. So you must be a queer. No, sir. Stop whispering, repeat. you, you giving me a hard arm. Uh...
2: No, sir. Who is all toxic masculinity <laughs> and homophobia? <laughs> And very dick focused. Um, very, yeah, there's a lot of dick this things. Is, you know, rip out your eyeballs and skull. Fuck you. Call somebody a dick brain. Called someone a scrotum head. Do
1: you want to fuck me up? the Do you want to fuck me up the ass?
2: He's very dick focused. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is another one of those movies, like basically every movie about the military I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I mean no disrespect when I say this: mm-hmm. the military is silly. I mean, it's... It just, it's just silly.
2: You know. <laughs> like, I feel like
1: if you were designing it from scratch, there's got to be a better way to train. I, you know, let's take for granted that we need a well-trained military.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like there's got to be a better way to do it than all of this shit. It's just silly. No, you, know,
2: you got to threaten to skull-fluck people. <laughs> do
1: that's that's how you instill discipline. And you gotta, you know, climb the wall, and a lot of jog. There's a lot of jogging. There's, there's a lot, lot of push-ups involved. Well, you
2: do need, you know, cardiovascular and all that shit. That, that's yeah. important.
1: I, just, I feel like there's got to be a better way to do it than this.
2: Well,
1: all right. So, what did you think of Foley?
2: I mean, he is sort of, and I imagine he he may have been the first. I don't know. A little bit like again, the, the challenge of me coming to these films late is that I've now seen I've seen that character. Right. A number of times. The hard-ass, you know, military sergeant who is going to, you know, yell you into being (laughs) a better person. Um, Which, again, coming back to this idea of, like, love, this is now the second most significant relationship for Richard Gere's character. And it is love in the form of physical, emotional, verbal abuse. But, you know, with good intentions. (laughs) So...
1: Okay, and it's and it's Foley who warns the new cadets about the Puget Sound Debs. Yes uh, and over that speech we get the introduction to Paula and Lynette. This mm-hmm. is Deborah Winger and Lisa Blount.-hmm uh, talk, talk to me about Paula and Lynette.
2: Paula and Lynette have been here before. They have made it a habit to try to connect with every cadet class to potentially, you know, trap, I guess we're going to use that word, a future officer into, you know, saving them from a life in Puget Sound working at the paper mill. These are two women who have Seen their mothers and probably their grandmothers settle for lives that are just sad, and then their hopes rest on you know being able to fly away with a flyman.
1: Right. We we find out later in the film that that Paula's mother went down this yes. same road and had Paula unhappily. Yeah. And then there's in in the factory there seem to be these other older women who have all done it women, before. Yeah who have all done it before and are very bitter about it. Yes. Are you a Paula or a Lynette?
2: I'm a neither. I'm a do something else. (laughs) Figure out a different plan to get the fuck out of Puget Sound, but do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I had to choose, I think I'd rather be a Lynette.
1: That's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) I had a feeling your sympathies were going to be with Lynette in this movie.
2: <laughs> you know, Lynette was very honest with herself, and mm-hmm. she was honest about what she wanted. And does that, I mean, make her a good person? I think that's up for argument. But uh,
1: no, she's kind of a terrible person.
2: Well, she was engaged in a transaction, and so was what the fuck was the dude's name? Sid. Sid. Her.
1: her yes. Her Mark. Yes. Yeah, her Mark.
2: So Sid was also engaged this is in a transaction. David Keith. He just unfortunately, you know, got stupid. And Lynette didn't.
1: I think I, I think he started stupid. He
2: started stupid, but it, he was always. Here's the thing: she's only a bad person if you think Sid was a good dude. And Sid was fucking this woman when he had a. He woman had a fiance. We find that out
1: late in the movie. Sid is presented as this very good guy. But even he's supposed to be in contrast to to Zach. But Richard even before Gere's
2: we character. knew that, it was always about the sex for him. It was like, oh, we're just going to get to have sex with these women.
0: Did you see that audacious set of tatas?
2: First of all, I hate the word bodacious. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like you immediately sound like an idiot when you say bodacious. So it wasn't like he was looking for love. He was looking to fuck around while he was in, you know, officer school, which again, totally fine. But then don't set her up to be the villain when Mm -hmm. she's like, well, I'm just looking for somebody to get me the fuck out of Puget Sound. Right.
1: And she, there's that scene towards the middle of the movie with her and Paula, mm-hmm. where she kind of lays out her philosophy.
2: Yes, me, no, and wish just ain't long enough to get a guy to fall in love with you. Yeah, but that doesn't justify trying to trap him. Or getting pregnant. I mean, I can't even believe you had that thought. It's real backward.
0: Well, it ain't any more backward if you ask me. And the way these hot shot assholes just use us till they've had enough. And then, it's just like we trash. Don't you ever feel used, Paula? Don't you ever feel like if this is all I get for my trouble, then the son of a bitch ought to be paying for it? No. I never feel like that. Well, I do.
1: I had a feeling you were going to relate to that. Yes. <laughs> like-
2: Would I personally do it? No. But do I totally understand mm-hmm. it? Yes. And I don't like the way that towards the end of the movie, she basically becomes the bad woman. Yeah. And she's the reason why Sid commits suicide. No, he chose to commit suicide mm. based off of what I'm not sure. Again, therapy. Um <laughs> So yeah, I just no.
1: Okay, we're we're jumping way too far ahead. Okay, here. sorry. First, first we have you know the, the the dance scene where these all these people get together the the meat queue.
2: Mm-hmm. It's not meat queue. <laughs> meat market. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> this is the start of a great romance.
2: None of these things are no no. None of these people are in a romance. They're all in a desperate climb to find something to hold on to before they die.
1: <laughs> the women don't exactly play hard to get.
2: Because they're there for a reason. They have 13 weeks to secure the bag, so you do not have time to be coy.
1: It's a really terrible band, too.
2: Yeah. They play all around the old oak tree or something like that. Tie <laughs> Yellow, Yellow Ribbon. Yeah, it's, it's not a great band.
1: I think we heard an instrumental version of Feelings Which by Barry just Manilow. Which is a
2: terrible song.
1: Yeah, no. It's
2: a horrible song.
1: I don't blame them for getting out of there.
2: No. To, again, do what they came there to do. Mm-hmm. So, Yes.
1: So did you buy we're we're supposed to realize that the Sid Lynette relationship is purely transactional mm-hmm. at least on Lynette's part. Mm-hmm. And pretty much on Sid's part yes. until he she, thinks she's pregnant. Right. What about the Paula Zach relationship?
2: I mean, that's she presents herself as someone who knows the score. So she is very forthcoming of just like I know exactly who you are I know what this is we're just here to have a good time right
1: and he's very he to his thin he's credit, also very, he's very open yes, about that absolutely you know she says do you have a girlfriend He says no and I'm not looking for one yeah.
2: either mm-hmm. but it, she is sort of set up pretty early on as is the sort of opposite of Lynette, and that, that her intentions are somehow pure, or she's the good woman in the story. Right.
1: And I think Deborah Winger is very good at playing those layers mm-hmm. where she is, we, we do sense more genuine emotion under her surface than what she's presenting. Mm-hmm. Did you like any of these people? Of the four of them? Yes.
2: Um, not particularly. No. I mean, Paula's fine. She's a very Paula's a very nice woman. Mm-hmm. And see, this is where I get into like where I'm in argument with myself a little bit because my my first instinct is to say I like Paula and I want Paula to want more for herself than a husband. Okay. But who am I to say that wanting a husband is not a valid goal or that it is somehow settling? So I guess then it becomes, well, I want Paula to want a better husband than what Richard Gere is going to be able to offer, in my opinion.
1: So you did not have a high opinion of Zack?
2: No. There was no opinion to be had of Zack. He really wasn't offering much of anything except, again, emotional unavailability, hostility, judgment, <laughs> and so and just He's- was...
1: He's kind of an asshole.
2: He's an a- and just not interested in dealing with any of his shit. And then building a, and sort of couching it in this bullshit life philosophy of like, oh no, you only have yourself. He's just like, De- deal with your shit. So, <laughs>
1: Well, his mother killed herself.
2: Okay. And that happens. And his
1: father was a whore mm-hmm. monger. Mm-hmm.
2: And as adults, our job is to deal with our shit before <laughs> we poison someone else with it in the guise of love.
1: <laughs> that scene where they have the fight in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. it's after he's had the physical fight with the the townies the townies, locals, yeah. the townies mm-hmm. and he's beat a guy up and then he feels
2: really bad about it
1: bad about it Maybe or really. yeah I'm not sure what that's about actually no. uh, and then he takes it out on her mm-hmm. pretty brutally
2: yes you know Zach it wouldn't kill you to open up to me a little bit
0: what do you want you want to fuck what you want you to fuck hold on right, come on, get on the bed take your clothes off give you a good fuck
2: where is
0: from. Get in the bed.
2: I wouldn't fuck you now if my life... Well, now get the hell out
0: of here! Cause I don't need this shit.
2: I don't know who you think you're talking to. You know, I'm not some whore you brought in here. I'm trying to be nice to you. I'm trying to be your friend, Zach.
0: We're gonna be a friend. Get out of here.
2: Hi. Fine. Fine. You know, man, you ain't nothing special. You got no manners. You treat women like whores. And if you ask me, you ain't got no chance of being no officer. What I'm saying is, this is not going to be a good long-term yeah, relationship. Yeah, no, no. But then she conveniently has trouble opening the door to leave the hotel room, right? And he, you know, begrudgingly sort of gets up and goes over to her, and then they start making out, and obviously everything is fine again. Yeah. Not ever saying we probably should talk about some shit.
1: Yeah, no. And then the next morning, she's making him breakfast. She's making him breakfast, yes. Not making breakfast for herself, just making breakfast for him. And then sits there and watches him eat it. I did this time watching it be like, oh, honey, no. Yeah. (laughs) You can't give in that easily. And just, yeah, no. He has
2: shown no reason to be this forgiving. And it's the same thing,
1: he's the same guy on the military base, too. Mm Mm-hmm. He's nobody's friend really, no. Sid's sort of, but
2: no, he's a loner. he doesn't
1: help anybody out, he's a grifter, mm-hmm. he's selling clean belt buckles. And again, it's just that to me is just like the whole belt buckle. Like the military is silly. Well, <laughs> like it's a who thing. cares? If like, you can that's, polish a fucking belt buckle. That's
2: their world. Every place that is a thing is a is silly. So.
1: But yeah, they're when they're all on the obstacle course. It's he finis- he yeah. finishes early, and then he goes and sits by himself, mm-hmm. while Sid is like cheering everyone else on. And yes, that's the contrast. Is Zach's the loner? He's the, doesn't care about anybody but himself. That's mm-hmm. what he has to learn throughout this movie just to care about other people and be a team player, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we haven't talked about Seagar.
2: So Seagar is the only woman that we really get to know in the cadet class. She also apparently has daddy issues, which we find out because Foley's like yelling at her. That-
1: That bugged me this time. And she was, I think she was one of the more popular characters when this movie first came Mm. out. Um, And I think she was even nominated for that part. But those scenes bothered me this time. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just 30 years later, 35 years later, whatever it is. But the very first time she can't get up that wall. It's because
2: her daddy didn't look. She
1: breaks down. Your daddy
2: wanted a son.
1: (laughs) And fully, yeah, Yeah. right. Oh, daddy didn't give you enough attention. And she just instantly breaks down crying. Like she does seem like she's too weak. To be in the military. Yeah, she
2: cries a lot. You
0: ain't getting out of here till you get over that wall, Seagar. I'll make it, sir. Hurry up. Come on, get over there. You really want to be a man, Seagar? You're another one of those little girls who didn't get enough of your daddy's attention because he really wanted a son, Seagar? Oh, that's it. That's it. That's what I'll beat you every time, Seagar. Your mental attitude of a person of the female persuasion. Deep down under all that bullshit, you're still thinking like a second-class citizen, aren't you, Seagar? You can never give orders to men. Ah, walk around. Walk around, sugar britches.
1: So that was a little disappointing. That's not exactly a feminist no. icon there.
2: No, she has a couple wins. She does well in one of the, the exercises, and it seems to be that she does well in the classes. But yeah, yeah. I mean... She's pretty much set up to be physically inferior. And Foley even tells her, like, you couldn't possibly command men. Right. And so, right. And so yeah, it's not.
1: Lisa Eilbacher, by the way, who plays Seagar, said the hardest part of that performance was pretending that she couldn't climb over that wall. Because <laughs> apparently, she was actually in better shape than any of the men were. <laughs> And she had to pretend to be so weak, and couldn't do push-ups, and couldn't climb over the wall. Okay, we get we get the scene in the swimming pool, the dunker.
2: Yes. Which seems particularly torturous. Yeah, so one of the, I don't even know which one it is, but one of the cadets.
1: It's David Caruso, actually. Oh. <laughs> Very young, baby-faced David Caruso.
2: Goes in the machine, and the whole point of the exercise is they're supposed to sort of escape from what is supposed to be a simulated, like, flipped underwater. Right,
1: if you're playing crashes in the ocean, right. then you're underwater.
2: And so one guy has trouble unlocking his safety belts or whatever, and so stays in the water for far too long before someone tries to get him out. And then when the Scuba dude comes down to save him. He's basically fighting the scuba dude right, off because he's, he's panicking. panicking. And so Lou Gossett goes in and saves him, gives him CPR, you know, resuscitates him, the whole thing. Which was, you know, a nice moment because it was the softer side of Lou <laughs> Gossett. But yeah, it was definitely, I think, one of those moments where the cadets all realized that this was very much like life and death. And they needed to support each other. And that's when we got our first, what was it called, D O R. Yes,
1: drop on request. Drop on
2: request, which, that's fair. You almost mm-hmm.
1: drowned to death. Well, that guy clearly was not going to make it anyway. He had, Foley had also beaten him up in the hand-to-hand combat practice. Oh, that was the movie. same
2: dude? Oh, same dude. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was struggling.
1: Yeah, obviously not going to make it. Yeah. All right, and I think it's shortly after that that Richard Gere gets caught with his little black market. In booties and belt buckles.
2: Yes. During a routine ins- inspection of the barracks, uh, Lou Gossett finds out that Richard Gear has been selling shined-up boots and shined-up buckles to the other cadets and basically says, okay, I'm going to um, beat you down over the course and I, of this weekend. And I, and I
1: do feel like he gets punished not for selling the stuff, because the way that scene plays out is that one of their roommates, Perriman, mm-hmm. needs a buckle at the last minute, and Richard Gear won't take the chance and give it to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, he's, he's not punished for selling the stuff. He's punished for being a dick. Yeah. He's punished for not helping his fellow cadets. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he really gets busted for. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then it's squirting him with a hose. Yeah, making him run. <laughs> and making
2: him run. And do and leg lifts. and mm-hmm. Breaking him down yeah. physically yeah. and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's loving.
0: Now, why would a slick little hustler like you want to sign up for this kind of abuse anyway? I want to fly jets, My grandmama wants to fly jets. I wanted it since I was a kid! I'm not talking about flying here, hey? I'm talking about character! God. I've changed. I've changed since I've been here. Hell, you have. I've changed, sir! No. You just polished up your app a little bit. You just shined it up. Now, tell me what I want to hear. I want your DOR. No, sir. I want your DOR. I ain't gonna quit. Spell it D O. Oh. I ain't gonna quit. Yeah, then you can be free and you and your daddy can get drunk and go horse chasing again, huh? No, Don't serve! I ain't gonna quit! All right, then you can forget it. You're out! Don't you do it! Don't you! I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! <laughs>
1: I got nothing else. So, did you buy that breakdown? That was that was Richard Gere's the <laughs> Real there. I have
2: got he nowhere was... else to go. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: What do you think of Gear?
2: Well, and I forgot that he was Pretty Woman. Um, he was oh, in Pretty Woman. Right. I was yes. trying to be like, where have I seen him? And then I was like, oh yeah, I was in Pretty Woman, which he was sort of wooden in that too. Yeah. So I guess that's his thing. He has good hair. Is he hot? Not to me. No. I mean, I see why people would find him attractive, but i don't have a richard gear thing okay and he's also he has a smugness about him that's just a little <laughs> bit off-putting to me but yeah i mean that was definitely the most emotive he'd been mm-hmm. the entire film um and the most sort of work he put in as an actor in the film again that does not make him a good candidate for marriage because what you don't want is a man who has nowhere else to go <laughs> choosing you it's not a it's not flattering
1: well, and like you say, we don't get that scene between he and Paul. No,
2: we get it between he and We Foley. don't get
1: his, you know, emotional breakdown right. or openness with her. No. We get it with Foley. Yes. And I guess that is a turning point for him. As far as the other cadets go, he starts being a nicer person. He, he helps
2: Seeger over the wall. He helps Seeger <laughs> over the
1: wall in the final obstacle course race. He gives one
2: of the dudes the buckle, the shined up buckle. right? Yeah, so he becomes better. I just... <laughs> I don't know that that's growth. Like, that's the, that's the part that I'm like, is that growth? And it, may, it is incremental?
1: Well, in theory, this is something they need to instill for the military, right? Sure. He needs to be a team yes, player. He has
2: to be a team player. Absolutely. Yes. Again, that does not make him a good <laughs> husband, material husband material. It's like, okay, you do that and continue to do that for like 10 years and then come back <laughs> <You're>,
1: to me. <laughs> you're so cynical.
2: Am I, yeah. or am I trying to save people from terrible marriages?
1: <laughs> All right. well, speaking of that, it's around this time that we find out Lynette is
2: pregnant. Sure. hair quotes mm-hmm. and she's very is, is
1: Lynette pregnant? Let's get that out of the way. I think
2: Lynette is pre- I think oh Lynette, come on. I think she says she's late, so she's I think Lynette was late.
1: She's playing it. Very cool in the beginning.
2: She is. Um, she's like, oh yeah, I'm a
1: little late. It's probably nothing. Don't worry about well, it. Well,
2: but that's what you But That's bullshit. When you're first, when you're late, if you're like a week or two late, it's like, oh well, shit, it happens. Like you're you're not totally freaking out yet. So.
1: But you think she was legitimately late? Legitimately I think she was pregnant. legitimately late. Come on.
2: I do think she was legitimately late.
1: She literally tells Paula that's what she's gonna do. <sighs> Like three scenes earlier. I don't think she lied about the She's baby. like, I think it's totally fair to trap these guys. It is. <laughs> well, that's fine. We can argue the ethics of it all together. I just want us to agree on the fact that she was lying.
2: I don't think she made up the baby.
1: No, okay. She was legitimately pregnant or legitimately late Mm -hmm. and then. Got her period. Happened to get her period. When
2: she found out he was absolutely right at JCPenney's. That Sid has dropped out of. You know what brings on a period? Disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) That's when your ovaries are like, oh, fuck no. Uh, Eject, eject.
1: (laughs) Floor manager at JCPenney's in Oklahoma.
2: Yes. So
1: Sid has. I didn't want some oak from the Skokie.
2: Again, fair. (laughs) He's sitting there saying, I can go back... He has
1: just proposed to her.
2: And said...
1: Then she says... Okay. He says, "All right, go ahead.
2: We can move back to Oklahoma. Uh-huh. I can get my job back at j c. Penny's <laughs> in two years. I may be manager,
1: yeah, right.
2: <laughs> and we're gonna live with my parents. Do mm-hmm. you know how much my uterus would just contract <laughs> in that moment and be like, Fuck this? No, no. Mm-mm. we could do better. No, nope.
1: He has proposed to her. he spent his life savings on this ring,
2: dumb. If you're going back to work at JCPenney's, maybe save your dollars. Then she
1: says, oh, by the way, there's no baby. I got my period this morning. Mm -hmm. Then he says, you know what? Let's still get married. Mm -hmm. I love you. I don't think I knew that until right now. So he still wants to marry her. He still loves her. And then she just rejects him. Coldly.
0: Lynette, marry me. make me the happiest man in the whole world.
2: I'm sorry, Sid, but I don't want to marry you. I really like you, and we've
0: had ourselves some really great times, but I thought you understood. I want to marry a pilot. I want to live my life overseas. The wife of an aviator.
2: Damn you. God damn you.
1: Nobody D.O.R.'s after 11 weeks. Nobody.
2: And it is totally fair for a woman to say, you know what? I'm not interested in living in Oklahoma and being married to a potential JCPenney manager in your mama's house. That's fair. That's totally within bounds.
1: So she never loved him.
2: Again, he just realized that he loved her. This whole time they were both in a transaction, engaged in a transaction. So why is she the villain and he isn't just because he got stupid and fell in love and bought a ring that he shouldn't have bought because he needed to save his money.
1: Yeah, I actually agree with you on exactly. all of this. Like, I'm, bullshit. I'm, try- I'm trying to do bullshit. the devil's advocate she thing, the, but vi- I actually like, agree Was with her
2: you. life awesome? Absolutely not. The house she lived in was trash. And I
1: do think that scene where Zach and Paula confront her. Mm-hmm.
2: It's totally unfair. It's,
1: it's totally out of line.
2: I
0: couldn't believe it. He still wanted to marry me. And what did you say?
2: Well, I said, no, of course. I don't want no Oki from Muskogee. I'd get that right here.
0: You little bitch. Who the hell do you think you are? Playing with people like that. He loves you. You just shit on him. You made up this whole thing, didn't you? There wasn't any baby. Of course there was a baby. God, I'd never lie about something like that. Would I, Paula? You little
2: God help you. You're no different than I am, Paula. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, no, you're not. Like, she didn't do shit. Yeah. But made a choice about her life and said, you know what? I don't want to move to Oklahoma City and be married to a JCPenney manager. That's fine.
1: I also had more sympathy for Lynette when I saw that shithole she was living she in. She lived in
2: a fucking. I mean, which <laughs> t- then says a lot about like how she I felt about Oklahoma and J.C. was Exactly. Live in Hawaii like, on, you want to you know. want to you increase your lot in life? You know, I can be broke here by my damn self. <laughs> no, Mm-mm. nope. Here's the other thing. Okay. She says I'm late. Uh-huh. And his response is, I'd pay for the abortion.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was surprised you didn't mention that earlier. He's
2: a dick ball. <laughs> and so I, I just, no, Lynette is not the villain here. He was terrible. They're both two terrible people who are being terrible to each other. hmm So I'm team Lynette.
1: You're Team Lynette. I'm Team Lynette. If Lynette had been the hero of this movie, would you be happier?
2: I'd be more interested in Lynette's story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Mm-hmm. She has bodacious tatas.
1: <laughs> That's like how last week you you liked Carmen.
2: Who the fuck's Carmen?
1: <laughs> in the big sleet. Oh. <laughs> the nymphomaniacal little sister. Carmen
2: was much more interesting. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> she was the villain of that movie too.
2: Again, disagree. <laughs>
1: You're not down with all this slut shaming for I'm really
2: thing. not. It's a problem. He was like, oh, I'll pay for the abortion. Like, he didn't give a shit about her. And then so you decide two seconds ago that you love me and I'm supposed to follow your ass to J C. JCPenney. <laughs> No.
1: Get against JCPenney.
2: I don't, and I don't have anything against people that work at JCPenney, but I'm saying that <laughs> See if... See the
1: softer side of Sears. She,
2: that's Sears, and not JCPenney.
1: <laughs> is there a difference?
2: Yes, there okay. is. Okay. I think, sure. <laughs> For one, I think Sears is bankrupt. I don't... Maybe JCPenney is... I have soon. no idea. I don't know. The point is, he was trash until like 10 seconds before he decided to propose to her, and we're upset that she was like, fuck off. No. Fair enough. Okay.
1: So yeah, Sid Sid does not take this well, however... Yeah,
2: he he was dealing with a lot. He was in the military for all the wrong reasons. He was trying to sort of live the life that his older brother couldn't live because he had died mm-hmm. in Vietnam. So, again, therapy. <laughs> um, but he decides to swallow the ring for some reason
1: <laughs> and
2: then hang himself in a hotel room.
1: Yeah. Did, did you see that coming?
2: I mean, once he started, when he was when he swallowed the the engagement ring, it was clear that he was done. Yeah. Um. But it seemed out of proportion to what had happened. I just was like <laughs> you could just go home and start your life.
1: Now at this point, before this, Zach has already broken it off with Paul.
2: Mm-hmm. And not no has not broken it off has ghosted her basically.
1: You're right. He did go. Yes.
2: So again, he
1: says to Sid, "Oh, you should have broken it off cleanly like I did." That's not what he. And then, yeah, no, he didn't. He he just
2: stopped taking her calls. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. No. So he was an asshole. Again, emotionally (laughs) immature individual who is not ready to be in a relationship with anyone. Right. Yes.
1: And then, then he goes and he gets her help to find Sid. And then after Sid is found dead they have that little scene on the beach and he just, he's he's about eight years old in that Mm -hmm. scene.
0: Look, you got no problems, all right? No problems. Another class will be coming through soon. You, Lynette, right back into business.
2: That's not fair. I never lied to you. I never did what Lynette's doing.
0: I'm not Lynette. No. I love you. I've loved you since I met you. Don't you understand? No! I don't want you to love me.
1: Don't want anyone to love me. I just want out. I don't want anyone to love me. And he my runs mom died, off. and now
2: my friend died, and I can't. And I was like, "All right, dude." <laughs> <laughs> nope.
1: And then this is the part I'm not sure. Getting back to what you said earlier, I'm not sure where the change happens here where he suddenly grows up and sees the light or whatever. Because the only thing that happens is he and Foley beat the shit out of each other. Mm -hmm. Like that's the only thing that happens between that scene and the end of the movie Mm -hmm. is he goes to find Foley and he and Foley have their fight. I'm not even sure what that's about.
2: Because he had found Sid and so he felt like if... How is that
1: Foley's fault? I
2: don't know. Maybe... Maybe he had stopped him from quitting the military. I don't know. But no, but Sid, it was not But Foley's Sid,
1: own. But Foley didn't make Sid right.
2: quit. Foley D-O-R'd. Right, Foley D.O.R. I mean, uh, Sid D.O.R. Sid
1: D-O-R'd. Sid, and Sid says, he yeah. didn't even come to me and tell me to D.O.R. I went to him. Yeah. So it's not Foley's fault. No. Foley is just like... the father figure or the exactly. god figure or something that yes zach is directing all of his anger right. towards
2: because zach doesn't and here's to have where we get to me
1: we talked about the magical negro and the sacrifice for the character to make him better mm-hmm. you know foley doesn't die or anything but it's like that fight is kind of that mm-hmm. in this it's like foley's just taken this emotional catharsis mm-hmm. for
0: zach right in that fight
2: mm-hmm.
0: all right male. Let's see what you got. Shh, shh, shh. Right. I see you've had some training, man, eh? Oh. 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 Come on, foolish. Looky, looky, here. Oh.
2: But he kicks him in the nuts, which is nice. (laughs) Yeah, that was...
1: I I winced at that. I was like, ooh.
2: Full circle on all that dick talk we started with. He's like, now I'm going to kick you in your fucking nuts. So, you know. I didn't think that was fair fighting, but, you know.
1: (laughs) Well, there's no fair fight. That's, you know. Gets
2: the job done.
1: Foley's not there to teach fair fighting. That's true. Foley's there to teach survival. So, guy leaves you open to a nut kick. You kick him in the nuts. And that the fight is over at that yeah. point. You, you, you take a shot There's like no that. coming back you're, from that. You're not getting no. up anytime soon. No. Uh, apparently, Richard Gere actually kicked Louis Gossett hard in the gut during that fight scene, and Gossett walked off the set for two days. Good for him. Yeah.
2: I would have whooped his ass.
1: <laughs> Richard Gere says, it was totally my fault. He was like, I was pissy. We were having trouble filming that fight scene, and I just kicked him in the gut. Nope. And then Gossett was like, fuck this. And I would have kicked him for
2: that. real in the balls, and. <laughs>
1: But how does that translate into before that? Zach is done with Paula and mm-hmm. done with the military. He's going to quit the military too. He's mm-hmm. going to DOR, mm-hmm. and then Foley kicks him in the nuts, and suddenly everything's back on track. And I don't, I don't know what the transformation is here.
2: No, maybe there's some message about men keeping their brains and their balls. Um. <laughs> Their heart and their brains and their balls. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like, oh, he got the sense kicked into him. I don't know quite what. And again, it's like, that's why I feel like the ending is really unearned because yeah. we have not seen him. There's,
1: there's definitely a missing scene between he and Paula.
2: So the only thing I am taking is that you are now so broken and so lonely that you are grasping on to the only thing that is willing to sort of stay by you in this moment. And that's Paula. And that is bullshit.
1: But she apparently buys it because she
2: sure
1: leaps into his arms and he carries her out of the out of the factory unless
2: she's still in on the con and she's like you know what i'll ride this dysfunctional asshole to hawaii or wherever he gets stationed i don't know
1: <laughs> I, don't, I, I think that's that's what lynette would be doing.
2: that's what lynette again i do like girl. how
1: pissed lynette looks but when then she he walks cheers but then she's she like, does which job, i'm not sure Paula. i even buy that <laughs> You did what I failed to do.
2: But yeah, I mean, it's definitely like, again, you know, the visuals that he's carrying her and saving her from this life when in actuality it is her No, no, she's
1: absolutely saving him. Yes, that's...
2: But again, I don't, I don't, don't sign up to be somebody's savior. That's some bullshit. Don't do it.
1: So you don't have a lot of hope for... I do not. How things go. I think he's going to
2: turn into his father. Here on out. No. (laughs) Nope.
1: On the ending, apparently Gear didn't want to shoot that ending that way. He thought it was too sentimental and too cheesy. Mm-hmm. And he said that even after they filmed it, he thought that. But then when he finally saw it with the music and everything, suddenly it worked.
2: That's still do cheesy as hell. you think it worked? No, no? It's totally okay. cheesy. And again, I don't buy that as a <laughs> realistic moment. Okay. I'm like, why are you at my job?
1: <laughs> Just interrupting her important paper collating. It's
2: her damn job.
1: <laughs> I think she's quitting the job.
2: No, yeah, I get that. <laughs>
1: So, I shouldn't show up at your workplace and march in and pick you up and carry you out?
2: First of all, you couldn't. Second of all. What does that yeah.
1: mean? I got a bad back. Yeah. So that would...
2: <laughs> and knees and elbow. Like, you just. No. It just wouldn't work.
1: Did you like anything about this movie? <laughs>
2: I love Lou Gossett in just about anything. He's great.
1: And and like I said when we started, there is no character here. I mean, we don't learn a single thing. Is he married? We don't know anything about him. But he does make it Mm -hmm. a good character.
0: Mm hmm.
2: Yes. And I mean, that scene after the class graduates and he, one by one, the cadets sort of go up to him and he salutes them and they have a little moment. It's really, he plays it very beautifully in that he's trying to maintain the sort of stern appearance while still showing the sort of emotion of what it means to have sort of walked these people through their weeks of hell. Mm-hmm. And-
1: but again... At the beginning, I read that list of Nettie Okorafors about what makes A Magical Negro. And she said at the end of that, at the end of the movie, you may look at those characters and be like, why did they do what they did? Mm -hmm. And I thought of that watching that scene because he he gets a little choked up Mm -hmm. when Richard Gere comes up. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's beautifully played, but I don't know why... I can see why Richard Gere would react to him the way he does. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why he has this emotional attachment to Richard
2: Gear. No, Gere. yeah, that's a good point. No, and particularly because this is a cadet who's just shown him nothing but disrespect since day right. one. Right. So, and he's had to sort of eat all that and like do more work to get this boy to a place where he was worth a damn to the military or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah, I, I didn't. No. I didn't buy it. That's where to me Foley does fit that magical mm-hmm. Negro archetype because Mm -hmm. it's like, I just don't know why you're so invested in this white boy. Yeah. And I do think Deborah Winger is good.
2: I do, I think she's great. I think she's the heart of the movie and does a lot with a character that could have been very sort of one note and mm-hmm. sort of predecessor to the manic pixie dream girl sort of archetype. Of right. Just, so, no, I think she did a great job.
1: Yeah, but no, she makes her much more authentic yeah. than that. Mm-hmm. So what's Lynette going to do now?
2: Keep working at the paper factory until the next class, probably.
1: Until the next class comes mm-hmm. in. you think she's going to find her aviator?
2: She may, or she may, you know, die in that house. <laughs> <laughs> but. It'll be on her own terms. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Anything else to say about In Officer and a Gentleman? I'm guessing this is not for you A in addition to the canon.
2: No. This no. will be the first and last time <laughs> I watch this movie.
1: Okay. Fair <laughs> enough.
2: I'd rather watch Richard Gere in Autumn in New York.
1: Oh, God. That's...
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: That's saying a lot. That's what I'm saying. That's depressing. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, our next episode drops on Thanksgiving Day here in the States. And I tried to find a suitable movie to mark the occasion, but the sad truth is that there are not a lot of good Thanksgiving movies. And I think the few Thanksgiving movies there are, you have already seen. Mm
2: -hmm. Home for the Holidays is really...
1: That's a Thanksgiving movie. I'm My favorite sure Thanksgiving film. Great Thanksgiving. It is a movie. great Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> so, we're going to be watching a movie on the thin justification that it has a memorable mashed potatoes scene.
2: That is very
1: thin. <laughs> it's all I got. Okay. <laughs> uh, we are going to be watching Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977. Okay. For those of you watching along at home Close Encounters is available to rent from Amazon, iTunes, and other streaming services and it's currently available to watch free with ads on Crackle. In the meantime you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com follow us on Twitter at FreeRangeCritic and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app In any of these places we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Oh, this should make you very happy. In 2012, An Officer and a Gentleman, The Musical, opened on stage in Sydney. Why? It received absolutely horrible reviews, and it closed six weeks later.
2: Good job.
1: (laughs) However, in 2018, they revived an Officer and a Gentleman the musical, threw out the original songs that had been written for it, and made it a jukebox musical with songs of the era such as Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, no. Material Girl, and Don't Cry Out Loud. That version is doing a North American tour next year, so we can uh try to try to get tickets for that if you'd like to, to see that.
2: Don't Cry Out Loud. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure where in the movie "Don't Cry Out Loud" falls. I'm I'm sort of keen to to see.
2: Maybe when he's yelling, he has nowhere else to go.
1: <laughs> Maybe that's Foley's number. Maybe Foley sings "Don't Cry Out Loud."
2: That sounds terrible.
1: <laughs> you don't want to see that. I
2: don't, and I'm shocked that it's a thing that exists. But okay,
1: <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to it. I definitely think we should go see you, that. I'm absolutely you not with your love of musicals. I just I'm I don't see how this could
2: miss. No.